You're listening to Sherd's podcast, where we're dedicated to exploring the peripheries of world literature and unearthing neglected texts from outside the mainstream canon. Summer on the high plateau can be as delectable as honey. It can also be a roaring scourge. To those who love the place, both are good, since both are part of its essential nature. And it is to know its essential nature that I am seeking here. To know, that is, with the knowledge that is a process of living. This is not done easily, nor in an hour, It is a tale too slow for the impatience of our age, not of immediate enough import for its desperate problems. Yet it has its own rare value. It is, for one thing, a corrective of glib assessment. One never quite knows the mountain, nor oneself in relation to it. However often I walk on them, these hills hold astonishment for me. There is no getting accustomed to them. The Cairngorm Mountains are a mass of granite thrust up through the schists and gneiss that form the lower surrounding hills, planed down by the ice cap and split, shattered and scooped by frost, glaciers and the strength of running water. Their physiognomy is in the geography books. So many square miles of area, so many lochs, so many summits of over 4,000 feet but this is a pallid simulacrum of their reality, which, like every reality that matters ultimately to human beings, is a reality of the mind. Those were the opening two paragraphs of Nan Shepherd's The Living Mountain, which was published in 1977 and recently republished by Canongate in 2014. The book is a work of topographical and philosophical speculation centred on the Cairngorm Mountains in Scotland. It's a euphoric exploration of a wild landscape, written by a woman with a deep and enduring understanding of the place. Join us over the next hour while we take an in-depth look at the text, giving our thoughts and impressions of this unique work. We hope you enjoy the programme. Welcome to the second episode of Shirts Podcast. My name's Sam Pullum and I'm here with Rob Prouse. How are you doing, Rob? Yeah, really good, thanks, Sam. Glad to hear it, man. We're looking today at Nan Shepherd's The Living Mountain, uh, which was published in 1977, but which I believe was written uh, much earlier than that in the 1940s. Is that right, Rob? Yeah, absolutely. The little information that seems to be out there uh, suggests that it was written in the final years of the Second World War and then the first years of peace, but there's not a definite date for it being written. Do we know why it it was unpublished for so long at all. Again, seems like very little information about it. Uh, She certainly sent it to a friend, uh, Neil Gunn, to look through, read, and this is one of the few dates we actually do have. There's a dated letter with his response to it, and he seemed to think that it might be quite difficult to publish and had some ideas about who not to publish with and even suggested serialising it in a Scottish newspaper. But for whatever reason... It wasn't published. Uh, she chose not to, uh, and it remained in a in a drawer until it was then published in this in 1977, when she seems to have picked up the manuscript again and and decided actually it was worth publishing, and so it it then 
took on the life that we we now have before us it's quite an interesting arc for a writer isn't it uh it, she seems to have published only in the 1930s and then had many decades of silence before this comes out i just find it staggering that you could have a manuscript like this just sitting in a drawer for 30 years it feels like there's such an incredible intense energy that's gone into the writing of it and a a real love of the of the area certainly comes through in the pages and to then just put that away i find very baffling maybe i could ask you about your first impressions of the of the book rob how i i suppose you enjoyed it very much i mean i'm i'm a big fan of a uh, ridiculous overstatement and i'm going to go with saying that this is one of my favorite books wow uh, it's gone right in right in at the top of the charts <laughs> um, <laughs> i'm i'm a i'm a huge huge fan you know after finishing it a, a week or so ago i've just been recommending it to everyone and i'm desperate for other people to read it so we can do what we're about to do now and spend spend a decent amount of time discussing it oh great i enjoyed the book tremendously i'm perhaps not quite as enthusiastic as you about it it hasn't uh, quite entered the the charts for me just yet but perhaps that will change <laughs> over the course of the program but i love that it really gives you a sense of being in the in the outdoors and the landscape is described so lovingly and with such care and attention to detail as you know, Rob, I'm not much of a mountaineer myself. You can attest to that, I'm sure, from our walking holiday in, in on the Isle of Skye, where I probably spent more time huffing and puffing and out of breath and cursing the mountain as we were climbing up it. <laughs> so I didn't really have occasion to contemplate the being or the soul of the landscape. But having said that, it does it does really bring back the, the joy of trudging through and gazing over this wild landscape. How did it make you feel in relation to your own mountaineering experience? Well, certainly, yeah, there's, there's a very nice element of the book for, I think, if you've, if you've been walking, if you've especially been walking in Scotland, that you can start to recognise things. But equally, I'm really interested uh, to now go walking again in this part of the world and to see how this book has affected things. I suppose a really important part of it that comes in at the very beginning is she she talks about uh, you know a novice walker or a young walker just wanting to get to the highest peak and back down again. And it's a it's a struggle and it's about overcoming you know uh, this challenge. But how that's not the most interesting way of engaging with this uh, environment to to be able to think about things more holistically and not just think about the pinnacle so I think it would really change the way I walked or engaged with the landscape around me yeah that's that's really interesting it does have a a kind of instructive aspect um this text doesn't it actually I I came away with a real fondness for for Nan Shepherd as a as a narrator her enthusiasm is pretty intoxicating it also isn't an easy read in my opinion it's it's quite dense with detail and kind of scientific precision and the names of flowers and birds and that sort of thing which is actually a huge part of its charm um but it's the kind of book that really demands your assiduous attention it's it's not something you can really dip into or read without really concentrating on it and it took me a lot longer to read than i might imagine from its uh, length it's just over 100 pages um, and so it's a slim book but definitely a deep one it's certainly not a, a guidebook for walking in the cairngorms more uh, how to approach that task but by the time you finish the book you realize that the task itself isn't so much walking it's it's kind of a life's work i mean it's a for me as much a book of philosophy as it is of travel writing or uh history or botany or all the, yeah. all the other things it could possibly be i understand you have a bit of information about nan shepherd's life uh, can you tell us something about her yeah absolutely so um scottish novelist and poet and it certainly seems from her own words that 
perhaps she held poetry in slightly higher regard than her novels. Born at the end of the 1800s, graduated from the University of Aberdeen in 1915, and she was, for most of her life, a lecturer in English at Aberdeen College of Education. Apparently a very inspiring teacher, kind of an early feminist approach. But then, quite clearly from the book, her huge passion was hill walking and the local area. And she lived in the area for her entire life. It seems she was well-travelled and and, uh, visited various other places. But certainly, yeah, she has a a lifelong engagement with, with the area that she grew up in. As we've discussed already, she, she published only really in the 30s. Although this book has a definite cult following, it certainly seems like she fell out of view to a certain extent. And then there's this huge resurgence in interest, which seems to be sort of the last decade or so. And she's still not hugely known, but very interestingly, she is now featured on one of the new Scottish £5 notes and uh, it has a couple of quotes from the book we're reading today. One which is also uh, inscribed on the, the kind of stone that inducts her into sort of the Scottish Literary Hall of Fame, which is, uh, it's a grand thing to get leave to live. But then there's a much longer quote, which is one of my favourite parts of the book, all in all, which is, but the struggle between frost and the force in running water is not quickly over. The battle fluctuates, and at the point of fluctuation between the motion in water and the immobility of frost, strange and beautiful forms are evolved. And uh, Robert McFarlane, who writes the introduction, also seems to be a huge proponent uh, of Nan Shepherd and someone who's contributed to the resurgence of interest in her yeah absolutely yeah yeah yeah. definitely seems to be one of the driving forces behind this this renewed interest in her work so maybe i'll give a bit of context about the about the period and the Scottish literary scene at this at this point. Nan Shepherd is regarded as being part of the Scottish Renaissance, which is a, a kind of modernist movement that occurred in the early 20th century in, in Scotland. And she was very familiar with and friends with quite a few of the best-known writers of this, of this movement. Uh, I've been reading this book, which has been extremely helpful on getting some background information for for the show uh it's called ecology and modern scottish literature uh, and it's by louisa gairn i'll put it in the bibliography for the show so as i understand it at this time there was a concern within scottish literature with ideas of a kind of migration of mankind away from its sense of oneness with with nature a sense that technological innovation and urbanization were leading to a kind of displacement of humanity within the world and unlike much of european modernism or american or english modernism many of these works were not so much concerned with the city but focused primarily on rural subjects and and shepherd's novels that were published in the 1930s were also broadly concerned with with rural subjects. Among her acquaintances was Edwin Muir, the poet and novelist, best known nowadays perhaps for his translations uh, in partnership with his wife, Willa Muir, of German modernist texts, including a version of Kafka's Die Verwandlung, The Metamorphosis, and their translation is still widely read today. But interestingly, Rob, it's not the first one. Do you know who did the first translation of The Metamorphosis? Uh, no, no, I don't. This might surprise you. It was A.L. Lloyd, the folk singer, ah. ethnomusicologist, uh, our, our good friend A.L. Lloyd. First ever translation of The Metamorphosis. Quite impressive, no? That's very interesting. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Yeah, and he also did 
translations, incidentally, of, of Lorca and quite a few other writers. So Edwin Muir was particularly concerned with this displacement in his writings, and he wrote his own book of travels through Scotland, uh, A Scottish Journey in 1934. And he would later, in his book, The Estate of Poetry, write quite explicitly about how the earlier form of civilization, which was natural to man, that is, uh, a life of subsistence on the land, growing one's own corn and wheat and making one's own bread, tending and killing one's own livestock, and knowing what it is basically to live directly from the land, had, had now been lost and in its place was a dependence on what he called secondary objects. So things we buy in shops, you know, bread, ready butchered cuts of meat, cars, refrigerators, that sort of thing. And he claimed that we live a life which is greatly eased of labor, but that in the process we've lost something which can't be regained at all, uh, an entire world of experience. Um, in stating that, he was anxious to assert that he didn't really advocate a return to this former way of life or intend to romanticize this kind of rural poverty or coarseness, but simply to state that a new world of isolation from the natural world can't but affect our sensibilities and imagination. I'm almost quoting from, from him there, but paraphrasing slightly. This debate was also extended to the realm of language and, and nationalism, and lots of Scottish writers of the period saw the Scottish people as being displaced from their own language. In this sense, we could think of the English language as a kind of secondary object, which helps to divorce a people from its origins. Both Scots Gaelic and the Scots language had been reduced to peripheral vernaculars, and some Scottish modernists attempted to change this. Um, of particular note in this instance is another of Shepherd's acquaintances and correspondents, and that's Hugh McDermott. He was a modernist poet, a, a nationalist, and firebrand. He was someone who's extremely outspoken in his political views. He was a Scottish nationalist, a founding member of the National Party of Scotland, which became today's SNP. And he counted Anglophobia as among his hobbies, uh, <laughs> which I quite like. <laughs> McDermott attempted almost single-handedly to construct a new national poetic on a linguistic level, crafting a form of literary Scots in which to write his poetry, which he called synthetic Scots. It was essentially an amalgamation of various regional dialects and words cribbed from etymological dictionaries of the, the Scots language. And what he achieved is quite remarkable. It's, it's, uh, it's a really powerful language. I, I read his epic poem, uh, A Drunk Man Looks at the Thistle, and you can really feel the weight of difference in the, in the rhythms of, of his language. It's, it's very uncompromising and wants to assert its its difference from the English language. And there's a good edition of that available with notes and a glossary to ease the process of reading it a little bit. This linguistic experiment seems to be not only an attempt to distance Scottish literature from English literature, but also it seems to be a process of regaining a home in a language that had been lost through the political dominance of the English and the dominance of the English language. And Nan Shepherd isn't shy about using the Scots language. It seems there's points where she feels it's essential to, to use words that perhaps have no other, you know, they perhaps are intranslatable or, or have some specific reason for being there in, in Scots rather than in English. Yeah, I would go even as far as to say that she sort of revels in, in the Scots language. But she also wrote her own poetry in, in Scots in a collection of poems, her only collection of poems, which again deals with the same landscape that the Living Mountain does. That's the collection in the Cairngorms. And that contains some poems in, in Scots as well, at the risk of offending 
any Scottish people listening to this, I could attempt to read one of the poems, Rob. What do you think? I think absolutely. Give it a go. <laughs> I'll give it a go then. This is Loch Ain, or Loch Avon, as we know it in English. <laughs> Loch Ain, Loch Ain, how deep ye lie. Till nain your depth, and nain shall I. Bricht through your deep mist pit may be. You'll haunt me till the day I die. Bricht and bricht and bricht as air. You'll haunt me now forever more. <laughs> so, forgive me, any Scottish people listening. Um, but the reason I bring up these particular issues in relation to Shepherd is uh, not only to give a bit of background context, but also to highlight some of the ideas that are explored in the Living Mountain. It almost certainly felt for me as though one of the tasks of the book is is to develop a sense of unity with the landscape of the Cairngorms and perhaps even to fuse with the landscape and regain something that that might have been lost through mankind's estrangement with the natural world. And there's certainly in this dichotomy between the industrialised world and the natural landscape, I suppose where traditional thought would have it that man comes to control nature through the kind of technology that surrounds himself. There certainly seems to be in the living mountain this idea that a big part of this kind of becoming or this fusing with with nature is actually partly to do with paying the respect that it's due. The points where the contemporary the you know the what's actually going on in the world around obviously this is being written in the the last years of the Second World War are uh, this point that comes up in the book two or three times where planes crash into the mountain. Mm. And it certainly seems like this idea that actually it you know, shouldn't be forgotten that nature around it can be incredibly powerful and man shouldn't perhaps think that they've uh, completely conquered the elements. On the first page of the book, she mentions that her task in the text might be described as a, a tale too slow for the impatience of our age and not of immediate enough import for its desperate problems. She is obviously referring to the Second World War, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it stands in, in stark contrast with something like Italian futurism, which has absolutely embraced both the kind of war-mongering but also the speed and industrialization that comes with that. Now, it's interesting that you mention futurism as well because she seems to feel that there is a general disregard of the natural world as though it were only part of the past that there's a tendency to view it primarily as something that we've moved beyond a preference particularly in in modernism for looking towards the the technological development of the future and perhaps she wants to show in this text that a passionate and attentive relationship with nature can also be part of the, the future and there certainly seems to be something within it that wants to pass this information on to new generations. She seems to will people to have these experiences and think about this particular relationship with nature. I mean, we're speculating, but perhaps this was the drive for pushing to have it published later in life. The cultural sphere that this book entered into in the, in the mid-70s, certainly seeing the the way the world had changed post-war, definitely I could imagine that she, she would think that it would be more receptive to that kind of message. So I thought it might be worth spending a bit of time on... Uh, what we think the book is exactly. You've mentioned a few things, Rob. You mentioned the idea of it being a kind of travelogue or a guidebook. What else could it be? Even a diary of sorts? Although it does, for me, exist strangely outside of time. Or I certainly have this sense, uh, and this may be absurdly romantic, but when, if I, you know, I'm with friends and go walking even though we might be taking photos on our phone and we've we've driven somewhere and perhaps even flown to get there 
there is a sense I think when you're walking that you could almost be in any time and that for me sort of comes out in the book so whilst definitely there is a certain diaristic element it's not in the sense that it records the passing of time in such a way I hadn't quite thought of it in in that way but it is operating on a time scale that might not even be human in a sense it might be closer to something geological absolutely and it is interesting then how the book actually forces you to slow down and it certainly seems like there's strategies she employs to do that one thing that certainly makes the book quite difficult but i loved is these points where she just almost in this like i don't know if it's frustration or or kind of joy at what she's trying to describe just descends into lists and some some of these lists last for a page or so what that does is it, it just slows down the pace of everything in that it gives a sense of the the sheer enormity of what she's attempting to to represent obviously the chapters themselves are given headings uh which are in themselves a, a list of things and i don't know if that feeds into how you understood the structure of the book overall more than anything, the the term that kept coming back to me over and over was anatomy. This is a literary form that attempts to separate something into its constituent parts in order to gain a, a deeper knowledge of the whole. It was a quite a popular form in the 16th and 17th centuries, and, and it kind of gained prominence through Robert Burton's The Anatomy of Melancholy from 1621, and John Lilly's Euphuers, the Anatomy of Wit, from 1578. But you can find it in, in later works that conform to a similar structure, such as Melville's Moby Dick, which is a kind of anatomy of both the whale and the, the whaling industry. And I think the book profits from, from such an interpretation. So I, I think this the strength of this form is that it is in itself hermeneutic in a sense it constitutes a kind of interpretive act to organize and fragment an object in order to understand it more deeply and she makes the claim at the beginning of the book that her intention is to know the essential nature of the place um, and her method in doing so seems to be to scatter and deconstruct it in the hope that it will divulge something of a, of a deeper significance if you look at the structure of the book it's, it's chapters each take a, a single aspect of the mountain or of the landscape so that you might have a, a chapter that's just on water or a chapter that is just about the birds or the plants of the landscape she seems to want to turn the landscape round until it catches the light to kind of look at it from every angle and will it to reveal its multifaceted nature. And yet, the, the very nature of the form precludes the idea of viewing or understanding the whole at once. It's quite paradoxical in that, in that sense. And I think Shepard is very aware of this fact, as she continually emphasises the fact that the truth of any matter is far more complex than, than one may have imagined to begin with but she seems to recognize the challenge she has set herself as a necessarily insurmountable one on the very first page she has set a task for herself but no sooner has she set it than she declares it impossible uh, she writes one never quite knows the the mountain nor oneself in relation to it however often i walk on them these hills hold astonishment for me there is no getting accustomed to them. So she seems to want to kind of scrutinise the inscrutable. Perhaps one of the reasons that the, the book has been fairly neglected until very recently is the fact that it's so difficult to categorise in this way. It, it doesn't fall easily into any particular genre that we might want to ascribe to it. I was reading Northrop Fry, the Canadian critic who is really interested in this form and he said that many of the writers who use this form are accused of a kind of disorderly conduct uh, that their texts feel quite chaotic but this didn't feel 
chaotic to me. The the very fact that all these individual sections of the book are connected in some kind of whole, it never seems arbitrary or problematic when she ends a chapter and moves to the next one. I have watched many burns in the process of freezing, but I do not know if description can describe these delicate manifestations. Each is an interplay between two movements in simultaneous action, the freezing of frost and the running of water. Sometimes a third force, the blowing of wind, complicates the form still further. The ice may be crystal clear, but more probably is translucent, crimpled, crackled or bubbled green throughout or at the edges. Where the water comes wreathing over the stones, the ice is opaque in broken circular structure. Where the water runs thinly over a line of stones right across the bed and freezes in crinkled green cascades of ice, then a dam forms further up of half-frozen slush, green, though colourless if lifted out, solid at its margins, foliated, with the edges all separate like untrimmed handmade paper, and each edge a vivid green. Where water drips steadily from an overhang, undeflected by wind, almost perfect spheres of clear transparent ice result. They look unreal in this world of wayward undulations, too regular, as though man had made them. Spray splashing off a stone cuts into the freezing snow on the bank and flutes it with crystal or drenches a sprig of heather that hardens to a tree of purest glass like an ingenious toy. I have seen icicles like a scimitar blade in shape, firm and solid in their place. For once, even the wind has been fixed. When a level surface has frozen hard from bank to bank, one may hear at times a loud knocking as the stream, rushing below the ice, flings a stone up against its roof. In boggy parts by the burnside, one treads on what seems solid frozen snow, to find only a thin crisp crust that gives way to reveal massed thousands of needled crystals of ice, fluted columns four or five inches deep, and if one can look below the covering ice on a frozen burn, a lovely pattern of fluted indentations is found, arched and chiselled, the obverse of the water's surface. In short, there is no end to the lovely things that frost and the running of water can create between them. For me, the, the big thing that structured what I thought she was trying to do, less in terms of the formal structure of the book, but maybe what was going on in the in the text was this constant play between movement and stasis. And then what what that play did in, in some kind of like formation of, of knowledge midway through the book. Describing water, which constantly comes up as, as this, I guess, literally fluid, yeah, the, the fluid dimension of the mountain. She says that the the speed, the walls and torrents of movement are in fact the mountain's own necessity. Uh, and there's this constant return to movement again and again. And for me, anyway, I felt that that idea of movement was absolutely connected and perhaps indistinguishable with the idea of, of living. Obviously, the title itself is The Living Mountain and discussing the the life, not even just the, the animal and bird life and plant life, but there's a life in everything that she speaks about. The introduction is very at pains to point out that this isn't some kind of animism or vitalism. But for me, life and, and movement are the, the, the two things. In the chapter on sleep, she sort of almost chastises herself for sounding mm. as though she's ascribing sentience to the mountain uh, in a way that could be quite mystical, right? But then you wonder, well, why, in fact, is she writing in such a way there actually seems to be some kind of life in the mountain that she finds it impossible to encompass within the, the bounds of description in any way. For me, the the way of understanding this outside of any kind of animism 
is completely to do with uh yeah some kind of like epistemological or yeah just this the creation of knowledge and in the first in the very first page she actually says knowledge uh, that is a process of living the the thing about the mountain being unknowable is for me this this really beautiful quote that's on the on the five pound note this whole section where she's talking about watching a stream as it runs down the mountain in the process of freezing and there seems to be an acknowledgement that to to describe something or to attempt to categorize it is only that process of freezing where something can be stopped temporarily but there is inevitably this movement so the the idea of of actually fixing the movement in knowledge is temporary and, and necessary but it will never completely describe something the kind of categories themselves are fluid and these these lists that we've discussed already at some points seem scientific but other points seem uh, linguistic they're a list of words uh, especially when it goes to scots the majority of the audience for the book are going to be probably unfamiliar with these words and so they they lose their resonance but they take on a, a strange physicality i felt almost um and i was very interested in what this kind of movement meant for these for these categories and when they were imposed and then dissolved throughout the book this i mean this this end of this quote that i keep returning to about the moment it's uh, frozen ends by saying that the immobility of frost creates uh, strange and beautiful forms but interestingly, these these uh, these forms aren't created. Actually, created is completely the wrong word. The word she uses is evolved. So it seems that form isn't static. It's it's constantly changing. In fact, this is uh, this is something I find really fascinating. There was something about the language, and especially a lot of the like, taxonomical references to plants, because they were words I didn't know. They had a kind of physical onomatopoeic. But without being so directly referenced to sound. Well, you mean that they had a kind of sub-semantic resonance for you? Absolutely, yeah. In the book, there's actually a, a glossary of these Scots terms. And quite unhelpfully, most of the Scots terms used in the text itself are not actually covered in the, in the glossary. But that in itself feels like it, it's almost yet another strategy. There's there's a huge number of words in the text which then just aren't there, and you're left to try and work out what they might mean by the context. But the reason the reason I sort of I guess brought this up, I was just very vi- viscerally affected by the language. I thought there was an interesting, almost like synesthesia, in the book, and there's a really amazing moment where she's talking about seeing stones again underwater I think in the stream and that she says to have seen the stones come alive is to have tasted a pleasure of an epicure and I found that fascinating because it is quite clearly a complete mix of of senses this this idea of looking and tasting and for me this was a big part of what I understood of this this movement and this kind of instability of of categories was actually even inexperience which I guess can be the groundwork for some kind of empirical philosophy or empirical way of looking at the world even that experience he seems to suggest is is unstable and that the senses can blend one into another and they're not such stable categories as we might like to imagine this uh, strange synesthesia that I found through the book the way she would describe um, yeah, she describes something seen as astringent. I felt at points where I could almost taste thing. You know, the way she's she's using uh, descriptive words that would normally only you know be reserved for, for very specific tastes, um, and she's using them to describe uh, you know things that she's seen, and it made total sense. It didn't it didn't feel like some some kind of novelty or or like a weird thing. In that in that breaking down of of those categories of sense and melding them together it was actually a much better representation of a sensory experience than just a a straight description of the thing itself and she does in fact say there's a really a, a lovely passage that i really like where she says each of the senses is a way into what the mountain has to give and then she starts to talk about eating wild berries and there's a a small description of of eating them but never what they taste like. 
And she says, the juicy gold globe melts against the tongue, but who can describe a flavour? And I find that fascinating because, actually, I think one thing she does incredibly well in the book is describe sensory experience, but it's never described as the thing itself it will be. You know, these these huge lists of, of colours constantly shifting or, uh, yeah, sight taking on a flavour. It's it's almost it almost functions as a kind of sleight of hand, doesn't it? Your mind has to suddenly do this kind of subconscious cross referencing, but in that process, you've you've had an experience that you you wouldn't otherwise have had. If if someone tells you that they ate a sweet berry, you think you know what that experience is. Uh, Shepard writes quite beautifully about colour, I thought. She has a real kind of painterly eye and, and, and describes the kind of various minute gradations of colour and, and the way that light and the natural colour of the landscape interact with one another so prettily, I think. And a lot of it is really about noticing. You know, she notices how in June uh, the Moss Campion flowers in brilliant pink or how the water at Cairngorm is clear but when it has colour it is green like the green of winter skies and so sometimes it seems to me that her descriptions of colour are really simply about describing things with an exactness and even to simply revel in their uh, aesthetic qualities however I think there's perhaps a little more going on than a desire to to just describe in minute detail or, or to give the readers an idea what the Cairngorms are like. It seemed to me, at least, that uh, colour played the role of distinguishing between how things appear and what they might be like in actuality. Over and over again, we're told that a certain object looks to be one colour in a particular light, but when seen in another or from a closer vantage point, it's in fact completely different. For example, in the chapter on frost and snow, uh, she writes that the shadows on snow are of course blue, but where the snow is blown into ripples, the shadowed undercut portion can look quite green. A snowy sky is often pure green, not only at sunrise or sunset, but all day. A snow green sky looks greener in reflection, either in water or from windows than it seems in reality. Against such a sky, a snow-covered hill may look purplish, as though washed in blueberry. Now this is, this is ex- extremely detailed, but it seems to me to make a huge distinction between being and seeming. She writes that the shadows are blue, but may look green. And to me this casts a bit of doubt on the idea that for her, as she writes on the first page... The only reality that matters to human beings is a reality of the mind. It seemed to me that it could be uh, simply, to use Shepard's own terminology, a corrective of glib assessment. That is, an insistence upon a greater degree uh, of attention to detail and a kind of celebration of the beauty that that might reveal. But it also seemed to me to be kind of shedding a bit of light on the fact that the reality of things is almost infinitely more complex and multifaceted than it at first seems. And that ties into two aspects of Shepard's methodology for me in the book. And the first is the form, um, the anatomy, which we were talking about earlier, which deliberately fractures the object under consideration and tries to examine it from as many angles as possible but also an emphasis on precision it seemed to me that for her we might begin to approach the kind of numinous object the thing in itself through precision we might get to the the mountain in itself so to me for her it did seem that in fact there are realities beyond the mind and that these might divulge themselves if we use the right tools in order to get to them. There is a section 
where she speaks about the, the kind of physicality of seeing and, and what that meant in terms of vantage and focus and perspective, uh, where she, she talks about just looking at a lock but moving the eye itself. And, and she says that this changing focus in the eye, moving the eye itself when looking at things that do not move, deepens one's sense of outer reality, which certainly would suggest exactly what you're saying. But then she says, then static things may be caught in the very act of becoming. That idea of becoming I found really interesting was that whether whether these kind of realities that it was possible to do certain things to get close to were static realities or whether it was something that was constantly in the act of becoming, as she says, and, and constantly in this state of movement. Her ins- insistence on kind of re-experiencing is is quite crucial, I think. She seems to suggest that even the the human mind isn't capable of of kind of recreating the the presence of of the mountain or of this landscape, and that in fact it's more kind of profoundly sublime than that, in in that it refuses to be encompassed or envisioned by the human mind. So there is in that state of becoming something unfinished but also a, a greater or stronger relationship with the with the present there's this passage in which she she's discussing the kind of clarity of the water and she writes that water so clear cannot be imagined but must be seen one must go back and back again to look at it for in the interval memory refuses to recreate its brightness this is one of the reasons why the high plateau where the streams begin the streams themselves their cataracts and rocky beds the whole wild enchantment like a work of art is perpetually new when one returns to it the mind cannot carry away all that it has to give nor does it always believe possible what it has carried away so to me this seemed to be a kind of mode of sublime in a way quite a kind of peaceful sublime <laughs> is is unlike the sublime in in other forms that we may have encountered it either in in burke or in in kant but um it really is a notion of the landscape stretching so far beyond the bounds of the the human mind that it can't actually be contained there somehow but has to be experience directly you have to be present with it and to keep returning to it again and again and i was also interested that even that actually perhaps isn't enough or isn't isn't all encompassing in the way that she she actually says that if humans had other senses they they would understand different things and so it perhaps implies that that there are just not enough senses to completely understand something i was going to say i wonder if she'd read david Lindsay, the science fiction writer who published a voyage to arcturus because in that book a man is taken to a different planet and in each region of this planet he has to sprout new organs in order to experience uh, the reality that he finds there but just to return very quickly to the the sublime there's bits for me anyway that almost straight Kantian sublime but the thing that really is a huge difference I felt was this idea of disinterest that uh, the sublime or the experience of the sublime is is tied in with with disinterest whereas for yeah Nan Shepard I felt like there's almost this like hyper interest I find it quite funny in in Kant he talks very specifically about mountains being sublime but he also suggests they're not sublime for everyone it's a very strange point of relativism that he introduces into it which actually seems just quite basically saying you can uh, you can have a sublime experience if you're an aristocrat but you probably can't if you're a peasant uh, <laughs> and yeah he he, ta- he talks about this uh, savoyard peasant who is una- you know the, the mountain for them is actually just fearful because their experience of it every day is is kind of life and death because it completely shapes their um yeah their completely shapes their life and this seems to me a lot closer to actually what nan shepherd is promoting as this experience of the mountain not that it would be life and death or there are points that she talks about that um but certainly that level of intertwined interests to have that level of interest precludes the the sublime experience 
it's quite interesting that when she describes people who live in this landscape or who have subsisted on this this land through their entire lives she's quite affectionate in some ways um but she writes about how the mountain has kind of entered their soul and that you can see the hardship of living in this environment not just in someone's complexion but also in their mood that there's a kind of sternness to these mountain people and perhaps less of an interest in its uh, in its aesthetics yeah absolutely i think she yeah she speaks about people being cut from the bone of the mountain or uh... yeah exactly but i think there's also a sense that living in that proximity or even kind of melding to that point that there's an aesthetic experience which can't be divorced from living that it's yeah again that that kind of like disinterest of like an aesthetic spectator is impossible but perhaps the aesthetic enjoyment is even more because it has this history uh, that comes with living somewhere and this constant sense of renewal and and seeing things in different lights and the colors changing this link between that she makes between eye and foot and eye and hand that the experience of seeing can't be divorced from presence of being there and moving you know feeling something underfoot she says quite early on in the book eye and foot acquire in rough walking a coordination one sees where one is and where one is going at the same time and there's this strange melding of that kind of physical sensory experience of touch which we wouldn't normally associate with sight and the kind of clarity of sight and for her those things seem completely linked i don't know if that was something you sort of came across or you you would agree with very much so there's a kind of physicality that goes hand in hand with the aesthetic experience in in this text and uh it's almost one in the same thing when the noonday sun penetrated directly into the water we stripped and bathed the clear water was at our knees then at our thighs how clear it was only this walking into it could reveal to look through it was to discover its own properties what we saw under water had a sharper clarity than what we saw through air we waded on into the brightness and the width of the water increased as it always does when one is on or in it so that the lock no longer seemed narrow but the far side was a long way off then i looked down and at my feet there opened a gulf of brightness so profound that the mind stopped we were standing on the edge of a shelf that ran some yards into the loch before plunging down to the pit that is the true bottom and through that inordinate clearness we saw to the depth of the pit so limpid was it that every stone was clear I motioned to my companion who was a step behind and she came and glanced as I had down the submerged precipice then we looked into each other's eyes and again into the pit I waded slowly back into shallower water there was nothing that seemed worth saying my spirit was as naked as my body it was one of the most defenseless moments of my life for me wordsworth is kind of present throughout this text his his spirit is hovering throughout the whole thing and there are points where um, we can see a really strong identification between uh, wordsworth and shepherd for example a, a passage that you quoted where she talks about letting her eyes travel over the surface of a body of water is remarkably similar to a an early passage in book 1 of if wordsworth's autobiographical epic poem the prelude um and he speaks about standing in front of a body of water and drinking in the view in exactly the same way um he writes yet have i stood even while mine eye hath moved o'er many a league of shining water gathering as it seemed through every hairbreadth in that field of light new pleasure like a bee among the flowers to me those two passages are 
almost explicitly in dialogue. Crucially, this passage comes from a moment in, in Wordsworth's poem which precedes a true understanding of the relationship between nature and self in Wordsworth's eyes. It doesn't yet have that moral dimension that Wordsworth will later ascribe to it. Nan Shepherd, to my mind, is res- responding to the purity of this early form of sensory apprehension, one that is kind of utterly open and unclouded by any forms of judgment. It's very pure in that sense. And she seems to reject Wordsworth's conviction that nature may be transformed in the mind to something greater than its itself alone. There's a famous poem, um, Tintern Abbey, another Wordsworth poem, in which he describes his transformation from the infant joys of a purely sensory engagement with the landscape to one which is more elevated or far more deeply interfused. He talks about how, as a, as a young boy, he had no need of a remoter charm than those aesthetic charms of the landscape, nor need of anything unborrowed from the eye. And that now, through a process of kind of deep contemplation and and thought, nature has become, for him, the anchor of his purest thoughts, the nurse, the guide, the guardian of my heart and soul and of all my moral being. And Shepherd is very anti-Wordsworthian in in certain passages, particularly the passage we were talking about earlier where she describes how water cannot be imagined and one has to go back and back again to look at it um, because the mind refuses to encapsulate it. This is a direct reversal for me of, uh, of Wordsworth's process. For him, the aesthetic of nature has to be kind of drunk in and then taken away and contemplated in order to produce a kind of true understanding of it for for shepherd that's that's not the case at all nature can't be an aid to one's moral education in fact it doesn't really reflect anything that we attempt to impose upon it but it's more profoundly sublime in that it it won't even be encompassed by the the human mind also she she writes quite often about how the landscape has to be interacted with directly and even physically for us to comprehend it. She writes how one has to enter these bodies of water, even naked if possible, to to fuse bodily and and not just mentally with the, the landscape. I think, again, the importance of the body for her is illustrated well by another passage that interacts quite explicitly with Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, American transcendentalist thinker. Do you remember a passage, Rob, where she writes about bending over and, and looking at the world through your legs in order to see it upside down? Yeah, this, this, this change, of, change of perspective, making the world new. Yeah, exactly. Um, I felt like this passage where she talks about changing that perspective and that it makes the details uh, no longer a part of a grouping in a picture of which I am the focal point, but the focal point is now everywhere. She says that nothing has reference to me, the looker, and that this must be how the earth sees itself. This kind of dissolution of self through a physical engagement with the landscape reminded me of Emerson's extremely famous and and, and really beautiful essay, Nature. He writes that, In the woods we return to reason and faith. There I feel that nothing can befall me in life, no disgrace, no calamity, leaving me my eyes, which nature cannot repair. Standing on the bare ground, my head bathed by the blithe air, and uplifted into infinite space, all mean egotism vanishes. I become a transparent eyeball. I am nothing. I see all. The currents of the universal being circulate through me. I am part or particle of God. And it was interesting to me that this goal of the disintegration of the ego is the same for Shepard and Emerson, but the the method of achieving it is is completely different. For for Emerson, it requires the contemplation 
of a kind of infinite being or a, a higher being of some sort. Whereas for Shepard, it, it is a physical act. It's simply bending over and looking through your legs, which is a kind of play. Just the kind of exuberant childishness of uh, looking looking through your legs is, um, yeah, just puts the whole thing in even starker contrast. As an adult, I haven't done something like this, but I recall quite vividly doing it as a child. It was an entirely natural thing to do. Again, she seems to be responding to this idea of becoming a transparent eyeball, but is quite explicit about this this difference that she maintains. She talks about walking and and says that walking thus hour after hour, the sense is keyed. One walks the flesh transparent, but no metaphor transparent or light as air is adequate. The body is not made negligible, but paramount. Flesh is not annihilated, but fulfilled. One is not bodiless, but essential body. It was interesting to me that the the dissolution or disintegration of ego went hand in hand with the body becoming paramount. The kind of robust and physical engagement with the the landscape was necessary for that for that to happen. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's it's for me one of the most fascinating parts of the uh, or the kind of themes that run through the book. And Robert McFarland uh, talks in his introduction about yeah this attempt to undermine the kind of Cartesian split of mind and body, and that this embodied experience is the thing. And it's I mean, it, for its time, it's amazing. He also talks there about Merleau Ponty and. You know, these are these are things that were being discussed in the realm of philosophy at exactly this point. And here you have someone really talking about these things, but actually in a in a for me far more interesting way, far far more compelling. As a slightly different contextual thing, I was really, really interested in a very small section where she talks about having tea with an old woman coming in from the the hill or the mountain cold and, you know, in need of some comfort. And they put the tea on and she says, you can call it a sauce or a libation to the gods as you feel inclined. They'll not make the tea feel less good nor the talk less racy. And for me, this this libation to the gods is seemingly a, a reference to the Odyssey. I was very interested about that kind of mythological storytelling and the kind of like transmission of information through through narrative as actually something that's perhaps a, a far better way of trying to put across some of the kind of ineffable things that she's talking about. And maybe that was kind of what this book does. It, it starts to create a mythology of the mountain. Do you know the poet... Ossian or Ossian? I, yeah, I've never actually read any, but I do, yeah. It was a kind of, almost a kind of literary hoax by this 18th century Scottish writer, James Macpherson. But many of these poems contain the speaker of, of the poem directly referring to the fact that the poem itself is a, is a method of recording history somehow or of keeping something that would otherwise disappear. Do you feel like the book is kind of recording a sensibility that might disappear, perhaps, rather than a purely historical moment? Yeah, no, I think, I think you're, you're absolutely right. But also kind of promote it and not just preserve it in like a museum sense, but promote it and, and keep it as alive as it, as it is or was. So for, for me, Rob, list, listening to your interpretation has kind of deepened this book even further for me and certainly kind of increased my enjoyment of it. I think I think it will be a book that I'll go back to and uh, recommend to people, but perhaps recommend to people with a particular interest in, in walking or in, in, in nature. I'm not sure if it's everybody's cup of tea i feel it's just the sort of thing i could speak about forever you know even reading it now i keep seeing new things and it it sparks off these ideas but i agree certainly there's people 
I will recommend it to and, and others I won't, as you know. My background, uh, working quite a lot with dancers and choreographers, and I'm really fascinated to hear, I'd really, really like to hear hear some input from some of the dancers I know. I know that in kind of dance theory, Merleau-Ponty, for example, is a really big figure, and this, this uh, idea of embodied knowledge is hugely important and for me this is absolutely what she's talking about at historically a really early point i think i'll have a lot more enjoyable conversations about this book hopefully to finish up this this particular episode we've spoken already about the glossary that exists at the at the end of the book which is really fantastic and something we both recognized straight away i actually read the glossary before i read the book because i was quite excited about it so we were going to choose some favorite favorite words which is really difficult because they're amazing but i think i might go with uh the word thrawn as obstinate which is actually one of the words from the glossary which is in the book. There's so many philosophical links. And one we haven't spoken about and would be quite difficult to is the one with Heidegger. There's seemingly some kind of Buddhist influence on this particular book and then there obviously is in Heidegger. And I was really interested because in Heidegger there's this idea of thrownness and this this sense of movement. And I find it really interesting that the word for obstinate is thrown. Because for me, it feels like when you throw something, it's uh, being it's moved and it's on a trajectory and it doesn't move until it hits something else. <laughs> and that's a pretty great description of something being obstinate. So I quite like that word. I'm afraid uh, my, <laughs> my choice is far, far less philosophical. My favourite word in the glossary is wirsch, which means without savour or insipid. I just imagine, you know, a kind of tough scott using it to describe uh, a, a whiskey that wasn't from that wasn't from scotland you know a weird dram for paddy's land <laughs> <laughs> so uh no philosophical resonances from me but uh that's my favorite one some of them have like a real physicality to them i think they're robust things aren't they we hope you've enjoyed this episode of shirts podcast Join us next time when we'll be discussing Boris Vian's Red Grass. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon. Sherd's podcast is a Holdfast Network production. Go to holdfastnetwork.com for more information.